It's Monday, January 23rd, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the Earth's inner core has paused its spinning and reversed course. Sounds alarming, but everything is fine. Plus, what medieval Christian monks, the OG hustle bros apparently, can teach us about distraction and routine? Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The inner core of Earth, that mysterious iron ball nestled deep at the very center of our planet, may have stopped spinning and be in the process of reversing course. Now, as everyone has been quick to point out, this finding is incredibly similar to the plot of the 2003 Aaron Eckhart, Hilary Swank-helmed movie, The Core. In The Core, scientists have to drill to the center of the Earth to restart the Earth's inner core with nuclear explosives after it stops rotating. Now, fortunately, that movie is legendarily inaccurate in its portrayals of science, and in our reality today, this pause in rotation is nothing to worry about. It seems like the pause and reversal is part of a regular cycle. But first, more about the inner core itself. Quoting the New York Times, In 1936, the Danish seismologist Inga Lehmann discovered that Earth's liquid outer core envelops a solid metal marble, and it has bamboozled scientists ever since. Scientists think the core crystallized out of a molten metal soup at some point in Earth's not-too-distant past, after the planet's internal inferno had sufficiently cooled. The inner core cannot be directly sampled, but energetic seismic waves emanating from potent earthquakes and Cold War-era nuclear weapon tests have ventured through the inner core, illuminating some of its properties. Scientists suspect this ball of mostly iron and nickel is 1,520 miles long and about as hot as the sun's surface." End quote. Seismologists Zhao Dongsong and Paul Richards were the first to confirm in 1996 that the inner core rotates in relation to the Earth's mantle. At first, it was believed that the inner core made a full revolution every 400 years. Later findings indicated it could take 1,000 years or more. Now, Song has teamed up with fellow seismologist Yi Yang to analyze seismic waves from the 1960s to now, and they've found that the inner core seems to spin one way, speed up, slow back down, pause, and then spin the other way, in a sort of cycle over a seven-decade period of time. Quoting again from the Times, In the early 1970s, relative to someone standing on Earth's surface, the inner core was not spinning. From then, the inner core has gradually spun faster eastward, eventually overtaking the speed of rotation of Earth's surface. Afterward, the inner core's spin decelerated until its rotation appeared to have stopped at some point between 2009 and 2011. The inner core is now starting to gradually spin westward relative to Earth's surface, and it will likely accelerate and then decelerate once again, reaching another apparent standstill in the 2040s and completing its latest eastward-westward spin cycle. End quote. Yang and Song explained how this might be working in an email to Vice's motherboard. Quote, 
There are two major forces acting on the inner core. One is the electromagnetic force. The Earth's magnetic field is generated by fluid motion in the outer core. The magnetic field acting on the metallic inner core is expected to drive the inner core to rotate by electromagnetic coupling. The other is gravity force. The mantle and the inner core are both highly heterogeneous, so the gravity between their structures tends to drag the inner core to the position of gravitational equilibrium, so-called gravitational coupling. If the two forces are not balanced out, the inner core will accelerate or decelerate. Both the magnetic field and the Earth's rotation have a strong periodicity of 60 to 70 years. We believe that the proposed 70-year oscillation of the inner core is driven by the electromagnetic and gravitational forces. End quote. And while this won't affect anything so much that we'd really notice it, Song and Yang do point out how it could be associated with changes in the length of our day, which fluctuates a fraction of a millisecond every several years, and that decades-long patterns in climate observations also align. There is a lot that lines up, but also a lot of mystery, and debate remain. As the Time points out, quote, This is just one of several competing models explaining the erratic voyages of waves that reach the core. It's also possible that Earth's innermost layer is wobbling about. Conversely, Earth's ferrous nucleus may have a metamorphosing surface twisting any seismic waves that pierce it. End quote. But no matter which hypothesis is followed, all further investigations into Earth's inner core will help us learn more about how the mysterious processes deep within our planet affect us and everything else on the planet's surface. Hustle culture sometimes feels like a singularly modern phenomenon, and perhaps its pervasiveness is thanks to social media, as well as maybe the gig economy, but it's existed in some form or fashion among certain types of people throughout the generations. You know, I think about men like Benjamin Franklin, who was remarkably accomplished across several disciplines and also very self-disciplined, writing at length about his various habits and routines. But one population I would not have previously connected to proto-hustle culture is early Christian monks. Historian Jamie Kreiner disagrees. Her new book, The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction, details the lengths that monks in the years 300 to 900 went to to fight off distraction and stay devoted to the lifelong commitment that they'd taken to concentrating on God. As a Wired review of the book puts it, quote, Medieval monks were, in many ways, the original LinkedIn power users. Earnest and with a knack for self-promotion, they loved to read and share inspiring stories of other early Christians who had shown remarkable commitment to their work, end quote. They especially loved learning about other monks' routines. These were seen as cracking the code to how they could live as devout and distraction-free a life as other monks that they looked up to. Quoting again, Early Christian devotees also loved searching for ways to get the most out of their days. Just as we obsess over the bizarre routines of tech bros today, the 4th century theologian Augustine of Hippo wished that he knew more about the productivity tips of the apostles. 
In the work of monks, Augustine wondered how Paul had divided up his day. If only Paul had written his routine down, then monks would have some useful guidance to follow, Augustine griped. End quote. And they were so hungry for inspiration from each other because they knew that the focus expected of them was not easy. Kreiner says they acknowledged up front that they would mess up and were compassionate to each other about how hard it was to follow through. Now, there were exceptions, of course. The standout examples of super-focusers are some of those whose names have lived on through the history books. A review of Kreiner's book in The New Yorker gives the examples of Simeon Stylites, who lived on top of a pillar for at least 35 years, and Sarah, who lived next to a river for 64 years without ever looking at it. These monks were the modern-day equivalent of the CEO who only sleeps for four hours a night, runs Ironman triathlons, and has written 14 books on how you can do it all, too. Other monks looked to them for inspiration, but some also acknowledged how unrealistic those examples were. See, one thing that I've repeatedly encountered throughout my life is that I'll often devote a lot of time and energy into coming up with a new routine or starting to build a new habit, or maybe I've just hit a really good groove on a previous one. Everything really seems to finally be working, and then the rest of the world pops my peaceful and oblivious bubble. A family emergency, a forgotten promise to a friend, illness, requests just coming in left and right, or even a shiny new distraction like an event I want to go to or a book that I want to read that take me off the devoted path. And quoting the Wired Review, The thing about overhauling your life is that the real world tends to get in the way. No matter how much you try to shut the outside world out, it has a way of creeping in and putting ruin to your plans. And that applies as much today as it did a millennium ago. Frong the monk lived alone inside an old pharaonic tomb close to the modern-day Egyptian city of Luxor. But even the life of a hermit wasn't devoid of distractions. Frong left behind shards of pottery that show he was in touch with over 70 correspondents. He fielded requests from people asking to have their livestock and children blessed. He asked to borrow books and invited people to visit. But sometimes he wrote of his wish to be left alone. Monk's solutions were a lot more sensitive to the fact that we are social beings who are constrained by our environment and resources, says Kreiner. Like us, they had competing demands on their time and had to balance the dedication to their inner lives with the roles they played in their communities. Monks weren't afraid to acknowledge both sides of their lives. Frong was, and I'm sure he would agree with this, hashtag authentic. He knew that even the spiritual work of achieving single-mindedness would sometimes butt up against his other demands, but that the real world wasn't something he could turn his back on. Flashy hermits who shunned all interactions were the social media show-offs of their days, but they weren't the only ones who could live meaningful, focused lives. End quote. It reminds me of a McSweeney's piece I saw the other day by Sloan Green called It's Not You, It's Me and My Science-Based Life-Optimizing Podcasts. Through the satire of the piece, anyone who's spent enough time around hustle culture can recognize the threads of selfishness that can come from that kind of hyper-focus. 
You know, it's rare that hustle culture leaves room for family time or a social life. And even when it does, in block scheduling or framed as a healthy move for your mental health, that still doesn't mean that everyone else in your life is going to change how they operate in lockstep with your newfound enlightenment. The world will keep spinning. Maybe not its inner core, but the rest of it. And the emails will keep coming no matter what new routine or credence you pick up. And the story of Frong, his shade towards flashy hermits who shunned all interactions, and Monk's acknowledgement writ large that we humans are, as Kreiner says, social beings who are constrained by our environment and resources, serves perhaps as a reminder that going all in on any one fad or routine or commitment isn't the way. Much as I would like to wholly ditch the social web or smartphones at times, or how much I would love to be entirely left alone for several months, I know that neither of those are realistic. There was a popular tweet just yesterday from writer and critic Alana Massad remarking how the infrastructure for existing without a smartphone is slowly disappearing. There was the removal of most physical menus at restaurants when they reopened following the early pandemic lockdown. Here in New York City, both our subways and our parking meters push you to use your smartphone instead of the old paper metro cards and cash or credit card. Some of the street parking doesn't even have meters at all anymore, just a sign telling you to download the app to pay. Recently, I was at a museum and they made you download an app to get a map of the museum. No paper maps were available. You had to use the app, which didn't function on my phone because it's so old, and which someone whose phone battery was dying or maybe didn't have a smartphone or was observing Shabbat or for any number of other reasons wouldn't have been able to access either. Yeah, I love going without my smartphone whenever I can, but leaving the house without one is difficult because the world isn't built for life without one anymore. We don't have functional payphones on every other block, and if you ask to borrow a stranger's phone, they assume you're trying to scam them. One small example I've noticed is that if I've committed to not using the internet or my devices for a day, I don't have a way to check the weather. Growing up, I'd get the weather report in the newspaper, but most of us don't have physical newspapers delivered anymore. And there are workarounds, like turning on the TV weather channel if you have it, but that change is one example of tons of how we have now designed the world for smartphones. Meanwhile, people, myself included, admittedly, will try to push a more enlightened life without one, a life that just isn't feasible for most people, unless you have a companion with a smartphone to handle things for you, or, you know, a personal assistant who can handle all of your affairs so your eccentric, privileged self can live in a pretend world of Luddite bliss. Because again, even early Christian monks living as hermits knew that the demands of the real world would creep in both to distract you and by necessity. But they also, Kreiner points out, knew how to leverage some technical distractions in functional ways or to help them go deeper into their work. For monks, it was the advent of the Codex. A precursor to books, codices replaced the long scrolls that monks previously read and studied. And some monks feared that these exciting texts would be a distraction from the content within them, while others took advantage of being able to count the pages and annotate to deepen their learning. 
Now, all of this and more varies, of course. Some monasteries were far more strict about diet and sleep and dress and hygiene and acceptable activities and in what amounts, some in ways that would be considered extreme and not at all acknowledging the realities of human nature. And I would recommend checking out the book if any of that has piqued your interest because it provides an absolute bevy of different historical examples and dives deep into monks' inner thoughts and how they essentially thought about thinking. But one takeaway from Kreiner via some of the monks seems to be figuring out how to make distractions or challenges work for you and doing all things in moderation. We think of monks as very all or nothing, but Kreiner's examples indicate that some of them at least acknowledged human tendencies and earthly realities, working very hard to fight against them, yes, but also giving themselves grace and understanding. Their commitments to focus on their god wouldn't have meant as much if they came so easily, after all. As The New Yorker put it, even though Kreiner's book is framed around what medieval Christian monks can tell us about distraction, she's not, quote, promising to cure anyone's screen addiction with this one medieval trick. She's offering commiseration, not solutions. One uncomfortable explanation for why so many aspects of modern life corrode our attention is that they do not merit it. The problem for those of us who don't live in monasteries but hope to make good use of our days is figuring out what might. That is the real contribution of the book The Wandering Mind. It moves beyond the question of why the mind wanders to the more difficult, more beautiful question of where it should rest. End quote. All right, well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.